Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Acton, Acton, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and we've got another special episode today recorded while I was at D-Day Ohio back in August. An enormous festival on the shores of Lake Erie in America, which celebrates the Second World War. I tried something a little different in this podcast, so expect some off-the-cuff interviews, riding on landing craft, and my thoughts on a really unforgettable experience. As I was walking the ground, do forgive the wind and background noise, but hopefully that adds to the whole experience. There's certainly a bit of musketry going on in the background. Well, Acton, Acton, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and today I'm joined by Stuart Bertie, um, ace photographer, amazing architect, and a man from Devon who has joined me on a kind of odd journey, I'd say, Stu, coming over here to America. We're, oh, okay, let's say where we are. We're on the shores of Lake Erie, a little town called Conneaut, which is sort of picture postcard American town, isn't it? It's got those little houses set, clapperboard houses set back from the road, and it's all, yeah, you know, the church it? and the fire engine, fire station. It's everything and, you like you'd see in the movies. Yeah, it really is. It's like a, it's like a living cliché. And uh, it's got the town park, which has little sort of basketball places and a beach ball pit and benches of people and trees and little memorial tablets all over the place. But right now, it's completely transformed. Um, this is D-Day Conneaut. We, we are surrounded by thousands of reenactors. Thousands of reenactors. And in fact, actually, we're just looking at a whole load of, of infantrymen. Um, there's a few few pot bellies and paunches I mean let's 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 be honest but for the most part they're actually looking pretty trim and to the part and they're quite young aren't they they are yeah I think most of them seem to be in it yeah and they're absolutely looking part they've got their there there's a big battle going on this afternoon at five and they're all looking primed for action excuse me sir are you, are you primed for action I'm just look you've got all the kit you've got your uh, you've, this is so you've got a lovely do you mind me asking a few questions absolutely so so what's this thing here this is this a big is sort of black assault, this is the assault gas mask bag it was waterproof mask. yeah and um, these were only issued to the men for the Normandy invasion and after that they turned them in and that was that never never seen again never seen again until someone bought them 60 years 70 yeah, years absolutely. later and thought Do you know what there's a show going on in Conia would be yes. perfect for that Yes. And this, okay, you got this other belt. This is your. This, this is, is a, the Navy life life preserver belt. I mean, it's. I, do you know? And, I've never ever seen one and, until today. And you, and you had um, two CO two cartridges that right. went inside of this belt. Yes. Yep. You just unscrewed that. You put your CO two cartridges in there. Yeah. And then it, if you needed to inflate it, if you got into the drink. Yes. Yes. You squeeze that, and it popped. The, the, um, I mean, that's genius, the CO2 isn't it? cartridges and the entire thing would inflate like a giant inner tube around your waist. How amazing. We've got Bill Millen over there. He's um, <laughs> yeah. heading down. Is this commandos? Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. 
thank you. Please, they've come to the rescue. I mean, it all looks fantastic. So it's great to have some Tommies here. Absolutely. With their turtle They're helmets. The largest contingent. <laughs> of Commonwealth. That's absolutely incredible. And so these are presumably all pretty much Americans. There you are, the Hampshire's uh, in the tiny teas. Yeah, the. Look um, at this. The Hampshire it's absolutely amazing. Largest. Stu, I hope you're getting photos of this. Canadian. This is absolutely extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it. They're all marching off to battle, clutching mortar rounds, mortar shells. Number four Haversacks, yes, yes. The commandos with their commando haversacks. Looking really good. And you guys are from, uh, from which unit? Uh, I'm the Allied commander. You I are command, the main man. I command the whole... Oh, huge respect to you. Oh, thank you, sir. Uh, and your name? Scott Buffington. Scott Buffington. And what's your rank for today? I'm a lieutenant colonel. Wow. Okay, well, thank you for... Th I've picked the right person to, yeah. to pick on. I mean, it is really impressive, isn't it? I mean, it, the whole setup. I mean, when did, you, when did you first get here? Was this sort of Thursday? We started setting up the camps on Saturday morning. Wow. Stringing out all of the camps. <laughs> wow! And um, and I've been here all week, but I'm up up at uh, the event of the site, the administration building, one weekend a month. Yeah. Working on painting signs and preparing for the event, doing fundraising and stuff like that. Oh, well, good much, for you! How much training do you do? Oh, a lot. Yeah. Do you? Individually with groups. Yeah, the groups do mm -hmm. individually wherever they are located. So, so this is all rehearsed over and over again? No, they just come here knowing what to do. And, okay. and most of the leadership have done it for so many years that that they're able to to pull it off. Are you from Ohio? Are you, are you from I'm Ryan actually from Pennsylvania, right across okay. the border. I live about two hours south of here. Oh, okay. So it's not very far drive for me. To out, out of interest, what, what sort of got you interested in this? And, and are you interested in the subject matter or is it... Is I, it the I started doing American Civil War. Right. About uh, almost 40 years ago. Goodness. And then I just do other other yeah. impressions. So you've always loved history? Uh, I'm a history teacher. <laughs> are you? Yeah, at a school, at high school or a university? Yeah, high school. Occasionally I, I will teach it um, as an adjunct for local community colleges. Right. You know, but... And I'm interested to know what. How do you think think the Second World War is is sort of commemorated here? I mean, do you think do you think it's it's waning, or do you think there's still? I mean, it looks today I think it's, like it's, it's a huge, huge interest. interest. Huge interest, and because you know, and uh, of course it started and it kind of peaked with the movies that have come out. Yeah, of course. You know, and, and once a movie comes out, then a hundred different historians want to write a book about right. the movie that just came out. To, to kind of cash in on on the buzz that's going to happen from the movie. It's happened with every large historical picture. Last of the Mohicans, yes. Saving Private Ryan, yes. the movie Glory, all of those of very good movies. Gettysburg. Came in, the Gettysburg movie. And every popular historian has wanted to put out a book right. on that particular subject. And um, so once that starts happening, the buzz. Um, and I think the thing that's progressed, the interest in the Second World War, is that our veterans are passing away right yes. now at an alarming rate. And it's the sons and daughters that want to come and still experience stories that their fathers weren't able to tell. Yes, and sort of contextualize what their, their father's experience must have been like and get a slightly deeper understanding, I suppose. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've had, you know, uh, uh, a woman approach me at one of these Kanyan events and says, "My, 
my father was a BAR gunner. What is a BAR? Right. And I says, come over here. We'll show you a BAR. Yeah. And handed her a BAR, and she about collapsed to her knees and said, and she started crying. She goes, my oh. father was five foot two. How could he have carried this heavy weapon all over? Oh. And it's the stories that sometimes the families never got to tell. Right. But being in uniform and being involved in the hobby for 20 plus years, I've been eternally grateful for being able to talk to a lot of the men who actually were well, there. In, were there yep. and were able to tell us their stories. And then we're the next generation that for their in their honor to be telling their stories. Yeah, and I think it is important that we, we, we continue to commemorate what happened, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, thank you so much. No, well, thank you so much. Down. No, you're okay, Colonel. No, you I need... Just, you know, came down. Okay. Oh, yeah, have, you're needed. You, you've got a battle to fight. We have time. You've got to take Normandy. We're, we're carrying every... He's carrying everything that his great-grandfather... Your grandfather... Was yeah. carrying on D-Day. It was, it was, uh, it was a guy uh, got drafted... Uh, and where they went is called Fort Niagara. It's one of actually the oldest continually used military bases in the country. It's still used as a Coast Guard station. Yeah, yeah, over by Niagara Falls. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, all these guys from northern New York got drafted, went through Fort Niagara, and they had time, so they put them through. It was the old 1st Infantry Division rifle range. They say he could shoot, so immediately the guy goes infantry. And he was a character enough. He somehow convinced him, no, 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 no. I have all this training. You should send me to truck school. So he goes to truck school, and then... Long story long, he ends up one of the most experienced guys on how to safely handle aviation fuel. And all of the oh, tanks amazing. that are going to swim ashore right. run on white gas. Yes. So they said, okay, well, once we've got all these tanks ashore, we've got to do something about refilling them. So right. they take him and three other guys and say, you're going to land a tanker. Right. So this guy had spent his military career just trying to stay on an air base in England with the Army Air Corps. And then because he could shoot so well and because he could do all these other things, they said, no, 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 we need you for a specific purpose. But it was only, honestly only a couple months. And once that was done, he picked an air base in the far west of England, yes. uh, probably Wales, honestly. And then uh, he spent the rest of the war there. So it's funny, if you ask my aunts and my mom... Uh, and they, what would grandpa do? He said the hardest part of the war was staying faithful to your mother because you know they would well, that's honest. They would get called into uh, they'd get called into London to help put out fires and that right. sort of thing. And they were all the Yanks are come to da 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 da. So they're quite popular, but yep. uh, he never talked we'll pay, about any better of better teeth, you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but <laughs> the interesting thing was, I actually had when you looked at all the paperwork, it was such a confidential thing he was doing. I actually thought he was another outfit, and right. I caught up with a veteran, and I said, oh, I'm Paul Richardson's grandson, and they said, no, you're not. That guy's a ghost. We put him on the roster, but we never actually saw him, and I said, well, I'm here, and I presume my grandma's a decent woman, so <laughs> can you help me out? And I end up at the archives and finding all this stuff that, wow. of course... You know, he had what a the, great bit of um, investigation. Right, and it, it, it was Detective something. Detective work. Wow. This is the cool thing that a lot of my, so I'm 35, Right. a lot of my generation has gotten into. I've got buddies out here in the Midwest. They've started this digitized archives, mostly for like Victorian America and so on. But that you can go and you can look up what is the roster or what is the... Um, title and deed office records for some random right. county in Minnesota to say, oh, what, where was my family going in that? Um, but yeah, it's pretty cool stuff, and now it comes back, and 
So it's kind of cool. So yeah, that was the idea. So when you, the, and you're wearing you're wearing an M41 Arctic. It, I've I've got an original. Yeah. But it's I'm wear it's I'm wearing it out, and I want a, I want a reproduction. You can't get them for love nor money. So no. Where have you got yours? eBay. <laughs> Did it, you? The, the company that's here at the front. They don't do them anymore. Why right. not? Uh, I think it it is an uncommon thing. So he had grabbed it because uh, he wasn't doing well with the damp, I guess. And so he wore it around the airfield and still wearing a flight jacket because right. he wasn't—he wasn't a fly boy. He was. So you're wearing—you're wearing the M41 Arctic purely because that's what your grandfather. That's what I wore. wore, and the pair of coveralls. The only thing is, yeah. I'm not carrying what he carried an M1 carbine, and I'm doing something a little different today. Okay. But uh, but the rest of it, that was the idea, mm. you know, and he had very specific orders everything was a purpose i have one uh reproduction white phosphorus grenade because he and the two other guys were told hey if this fails yeah we don't want thousands of gallons of aviation fuel to fall into german hands no. so destroy it and i talked with uh, a guy who was in a different one of the different loading operations or the fueling operations on a different beach and i said how good is your arm there's no way you throw a white phosphorus grenade into 12,000 gallons of aviation fuel and you get away from it. And he said, no, no, we, we all knew that was Suicide that was going to be it. So, but yeah, that, that, was the, that was the idea. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, I mean, you know, you can, I mean, people can throw a baseball kind of 80 yards if you really need to, yeah, but, but not that far. But I tell you, it's funny. Uh, I was in a, a small... Um, bed and breakfast in Stockbridge, Mass., which is Norman Rockwell's yes. home, right? And this couple was sitting and talking with me, and I had this jacket on. They said, it looks like a World War II jacket. I said, oh, it's because of my grandfather. And well, where was he? Well, he conned himself into a gig that he had to go to France every morning, but every night he came back to an inn in Dorset, England. And they're like, which inn in Dorset, England? I said, I have no idea. And this woman opens her phone and says, what's his name? I said, Paul Herbert Richardson. And she rattles off. And this couple owned and had refurbished this inn in Dorset. No and, way. Yeah, they had looked at me and they're like, if you can fly yourself here for the 75th uh, anniversary, just come stay here. And I just couldn't make it happen. Oh. But it was so funny that in a That's random... incredible. She's originally from Essex. And he's originally from here, in, from Pennsylvania area. Yeah. And she just was like, oh, I found this inn. I want to restore it back to what it looked like. And they huh. went on this whole thing. How and he amazing. was a minor history nerd. And they found that the one of the owners at the time had literally recorded all the guys that came through. So That's that they knew amazing. everyone was there. And that was another way to verify what I was finding that he did. He actually did because his name was in amazing. all this. Paper. So you're Richardson, are you? No. Mum's mom's surname, Richardson. Okay. I'm a Stowe. Another good... Uh, Stowe. So, yeah. what's your first name? Alexander. Alex. Alex, Alex Stowe. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's it's nice to talk to you. Nice talking to um, you as well. Um, so uh, I live very close to Dorset, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so it's, it's uh, my neck. It's my neck of the woods. Really. We we first got into it because we we used to do the Rangers, Fifth yeah. Ranger Battalion. How do you do? And so the yeah. Fifth Way took much. off. Yeah. Now on the 29th. Yeah. Well, we switch impressions in our group for every event that we do. And your name is sorry? Uh, Brian Shade. Brian Shade. Okay. Yeah. We. Um, You're looking the, more the most laden so far. Yeah. Apart from uh, the chat with the radio, I was very impressed that your colonel was was beetling around with a with a proper radio and a guy BCA, following him around yeah. with a radio kit. So you're doing things properly. When he was in London in an airfield near London at the beginning, he went in and an artist. Uh, he was like, I want to pay for one of those charcoal sketches. I'm not surprised that that. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. And the artist is like. It's on the house. 
He's like, I want to do a couple of them, and you can have one. But have he's you like, seen it's it? on the house. It's, it hangs up in the house. No yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. Well, I can see why why everyone wanted him. I mean, you know, tall, good-looking bloke, man of mystery. No, to say, you know, square jawed, obviously, <laughs> he, lots of money, chewing could, gum, chocolate. He, yeah. Lucky he he, strikes. He could. Uh, it was said he could talk his way up. I mean, he talked his way in some office from like you're sending me to infantryman school send me to truck school instead i don't know it's 1940 i don't know how you pull that off with the army but but look at all these soldiers i mean it is astonishing how many there are i mean hundreds and hundreds and hundreds you just never get a chance anywhere other than here to see this number of second world war tommies gis canadians Mm -hmm. Commandos, paratroopers, well, not paratroopers so much, but they're all going off to do the D Day landings. This amazing kind of, would you call it a reenactment? It's not a reenactment it exactly. Is. It's a sort it of is. an it appreciation, is. isn't it? It's a kind of sense of, of what was happening. You're, you're on the beaches, sure. you're being shot at, it's, all that kind of stuff. It is known as a reenactment in many sense. And so, yeah, this, this event's grown over the past. Yeah, 15, so it seems. 15 years, 20 years almost. Uh, when I. I first came to this event it was 2006 yes and there was a hundred on each side more or less and it, it has grown tremendously in scope and scale and authenticity as well right the there's been a lot more effort over the past few years by the coordinators to try to hone down the random impressions that you would see here that aren't necessarily pertinent to the invasion of Normandy mm-hmm. you uh, you're seeing a lot more effort done to try and bring the living history here. And, and right. you asked, is this a living history? Is this reenactment? It's, it's a little of everything. There's a little bit of everything. Certainly yeah. there's the honoring and the commemoration, yes. and there is the reenactment. You'll see the stage battle of the landing coming in yeah, now. Yeah, so I'm about to go and get in, in hot position. And uh, then, um, and beyond that, there's, well, we have veterans here. So there's, there's plenty to see. And it's, well, I'm rather hoping I can, I can catch a veteran for five right. or 10 minutes and, and we did get have the, a little chat. Well, it's um, it's day two um, here at Conniot, but actually Stu and I have come down a little south because we're now looking at this beautiful, gorgeous morning. It was incredibly, incredibly windy yesterday, but the wind has dropped. I can hear the kind of cicadas and crickets and whatnot. Uh, I'm looking out at a huge sort of softly undulating meadow of, of wild grasses and flowers, forests in the distance, and we're about to witness an airborne drop and they're going to be using round parachutes and uh, just as they did in the second world war and they'll be using all the right kit we met one of the guys who's going to be jumping today he was a bit disappointed not to do it yesterday because of the wind but it'll be an interesting thing to see because i've only ever seen these parachute drops in the distance and and here we are in in northern ohio looking at something that's trying to recreate d-day but um it'll be interesting to see but Stu and i've got got talking to um some folks over here um, Diana and Co. And um, guys, it's good to see you this morning. And um, I'm I'm talking here to a Desert Storm veteran. I just said to him, he doesn't look young. He doesn't look um, old enough to be a Desert Storm veteran. We worked out with the same age. And I remember <laughs> Desert Storm happening when I was at university. But you were actually in it. I was. Yes. Yeah. What were you doing? I was a I was a uh, intelligence specialist, wow. but for an infantry division, infantry division, 24th Infantry Division. Right. And uh, the battalion I was assigned to was an air defense battalion. So right. we had Vulcans and Stingers, Stinger missiles systems. Wow. So luckily there were no aircraft flying. So we ended up being pretty much Cav scouts with the um, battalions that we were assigned to. Mm-hmm. So during Desert Storm. So we pushed all the way into uh, Tallulah Airfield and then to Basra. Okay. So, and then came home. Yep. 
good and safe and sound, I've got yes, to say. Yes, yes, um, very lucky. So, so what brings you up here? You, are you, do you live in Ohio? Yes, I do. Yes, we both, my son and I uh, live. I is live your son in here? Yes. So, um, yeah, we come up here. We've been coming up, I think, since he was like four or five. Oh, really? Every year. So, and back so always, then, always for the D-Day show. Yes, and we would come both days. Yeah, it's a fantastic event. And it's really been special for him and myself as well because getting to see and talk to the World War II veterans that yeah. would come, which there's less and less and less every year. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's got to be traumatic, isn't it, when the last one goes? Very traumatic. Very traumatic. Very, uh, you know, I have very heartfelt because of my military experience towards right. them. But even before I went in the military as a kid, it was a, it was a big deal to me and very special. So... I've, I've been asking people, you know, how do they, how do they, I mean, obviously the fact that you're here, it shows you're interested in it, but generally speaking, where, where do you think the heritage of, of the Second World War, World War II sits in the U.S. these days? Oh, I think, at least for most people, I think it's, it's, it's like one of the most respectful things that, you know, if you find somebody or even just in a graveyard seeing people, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that they fought in the wars, it's such an amazing thing, mm. so... So you have that very sort of deep sense of the debt we owe and, and the sacrifice that was made oh, and all yes, that kind of thing? Yes, Yeah, when you, especially at this D-Day event, some of the, um, they have some casualty boards that explains the casualties. Mm. And when you look at those numbers, it, it kind of, if it doesn't touch you, something's wrong. Yes. So a lot of young lives that never got to have families and, you know, grow old. Yeah. It's a... Uh, makes you really think about it so yeah and i always think you know i mean america is you know there's still a lot of parts of america which are pretty isolated and people live in their own little bubbles and their and their towns and their county and their state and you know the amount of times that people have said to me cool you've been to a lot of states you know i've barely done a fraction of that myself and i live here you know so there is there is you know there's obviously a lot of people that are very peripatetic but there's a lot of people in the u.s who don't kind of move a huge distance and well, if that's the case now, of course, that was quadruply the case in the 1930s yeah, when, sure. 20s and 30s, when, when the U.S. was isolationist and, and trying to sort of build itself up internally and all the rest of it. You know, you, you drive around here and, and, and this place is so kind of peaceful, isn't it? And, yeah. and, and rural yeah. and, and in many ways quite remote. Yeah. And you think, God, taking this kind of farm boy out of rural Ohio and putting him on a mountain in Italy right. or, I don't know, you know, on the... Guam or, yeah, or Guadalcanal exactly. or yeah. something like that. It's 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 such a big leap for people, oh, yeah. isn't it? To 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 move out of the states, cross oceans, and put your neck on the line. Yeah, and fight essentially fighting for democracy. And you know, a lot of them weren't constricted; they volunteered um, yep. because of you know of December seventh. That yes. there's such a heartfelt feeling of you know this is our country and we've been attacked and we need to we need to end this and yeah. and the amount of you know young men and women that got involved with world war ii it's it's actually amazing i mean it's i it's something we never ever can forget and i i think events like this is what helps us not forget and you know yep. keeps it alive for the younger generations yes. and how important and um it was to our country and other countries the whole world so. yeah sure Sure, sure, sure. So you've been interested since you were knee-high to a grasshopper. Yeah, I've been very interested in this since I was, what, five? Yeah, at least. Uh, Probably my first thing that I probably remember is uh, when I was in Boy Scouts, we uh, would go and plant flags for all the veterans at Veterans Center That's such a good thing to do. I had no idea. It would, 
what what made it like interesting for me was that you would look at it and go I'm only like what six at that point yeah. I'm very young and I'm playing flags and I have no idea why I'm doing it and I'm only going to certain graves for it so that definitely sparked my interest in well why am I planting flags for these people and I was like well they're a veteran well what does that mean they served for our country most of them didn't make it back some of them did yeah but that was always the interesting and did you part. did that then kind of I mean I always think that the 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 interest in, in, in this conflict really stems from human drama. You know, it's the idea of individual lives going over and do, doing stuff that, that to us might seem unimaginable now. It, was, was that for you? I mean, you, you're planting flags. Are you kind of thinking, God, I wonder who this, this guy was? It was a little bit of intrigue, I would say. Like, there's a lot of stories that you hear that just survive based off myth alone. Like, sure. But for me, it was more like... Well, I can. I, I see the cross. I see the. I see the tomb right here. This mm. is. This isn't a myth. This is like real life. So yes, exactly. How this that. happened, and then it, it was kind of iconic. Like you'd hear the names, and then like I know I would talk to him, and I'd be like, "What's this mean?" It says WW two, and then he would be like, "That's World War two. What's right. this mean? WW one, World War one. Yes. Vietnam, Korea. You see all right. the different ones, and you'd hear like the name, and he. He's very knowledgeable on it, serving himself. You'd look at it and you'd ask him, well, why'd it happen? He'd explain it to you. And kind of led me into a deep love of history. Right. It, it's important to remember your history. You're doomed to repeat it. Um, so I would just, I started to learn about it because back in the day, I, I knew I was sitting over there. I didn't know the difference between Austria and Australia. Right. So <laughs> I wanted to, you know, I'd hear someone say Austria, and then that led me into learning maps right. and getting a real appreciation from seeing we're all the way over here and sure. we're coming all the way over here to help out not save the day just and how old are you now running. uh 18 going to college wow good for you and when you were growing up and you know you're a teenager how did how did your interest in it kind of manifest itself i mean was it was it was it playing video games was it watching band of brothers was it reading books or comics or, or what or was i really it a bit of everything i have a bunch of comics that he bought me nice uh, what was what's the main one uh, Sergeant uh, Sergeant Rock. Yeah, yeah, Sergeant Rock. That was the main one. Yeah. Okay. That was good. World War Two comics. Hogan's nice. Heroes. Yeah, Hogan's we watched Heroes, all of that. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, yeah, very um, strong. Yeah. But I think it was mainly I, I I loved planes. I always thought it was really cool being in a plane, yeah, seeing yeah, something yeah. fly. You'd be the same. So I would I, I he started buying me some plane books, and I'd see all these old timey planes, yep. ones that I've never seen actually like in real life, like plane that you know has piston engine on it. Yeah, it's not just a jet. So I'm like. Well, this is interesting. So started to dive into that. Went to World War One, stuff like that. Worked my way up to World War Two, where I thought it, we got all these different ideas floating around about what a good plane looks like. Right. That was real interesting. See all these different models, all these things like that. And then it's like, well, if you want to see some of the piston engine planes fly, we can go to something like this or go to an air show. You mean to Oshkosh? No, I don't. No. Uh, I really want to go to that. Apparently, it's a it's a monster, the largest kind of warbird. Yeah. I've been, uh, um, air show in the world apparently yeah. we've been to one day one day we go to a lot of um, air museums right that was yeah. more of our thing yeah. uh, Dayton that, yes we went to yeah. that one a lot well that's Ohio isn't it of course yep that one was favorite really, plane uh, favorite plane's P-38 it's my favorite good man do you know what I saw a P-38 flying just a month or two ago and it oh, was absolutely fantastic. awesome yeah. it was it just the most amazing plane it's um you know, I've, you know, being a Brit, I always love the Spitfire, of course. Yeah, yeah, um, awesome. I'm a massive <laughs> fan of the, of the P-51. Classic. I love the P-51. But the go P-38 to... is, is, is right up there. You know, my interest is in kind of modern 
you know, wars, but conflict. He, yeah. On the way here, we were talking about the Battle of Waterloo because he's oh, taken right. it and gone back centuries. Yeah. You know, in that just his interest is grown. Take a look back. Well, how did we get here? How do we get yeah. to? Yeah. How do we get to World War One? Learn about the setup of that. Learn about England beating Spain, becoming the number one power. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Stuff yeah. like that. <laughs> Maritime power. <laughs> yep. yep. Hey, well, the, the interesting thing is that you know, obviously, the weaponry changes, but oh, but yeah. but the the processes don't. You know, you still yeah. need to have your supply lines perfect and tactics and, and, and tactics and and um, you still need to be pioneering and getting one over yeah. your enemy with yep. with the sort of advancement of weaponry and etc. Yeah. etc. Et From that point of view, and you need a little bit of luck. Yeah. yeah. None of that really. Weather, changes. all that stuff. Yeah. It's amazing how that all comes into play. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen. Thank you. That's um. It's great to talk to you. Oh, Do you think that's it? Go. Here we go. Oh, we're, yeah, I'm going to stop talking right now because yeah, I can hear a C-47. That, that sound. Yeah, indeed. We're going to take a break here, but I'll be back with more Dido Ohio in just a moment. Well, I've, I've crossed the road. I'm, I'm, I'm with Stu and... Someone who looks like they know what what's going on. I, I know the, I know the guys. They're jumping and they they are airborne. So ah, well, they're coming. Not more than that, there's there's the C forty seven. There it is. There it is. And Turning over, just about to be blinded by looking straight into the sun. And that's quite a sight. Can you hear that? I don't know whether I have one. The microphone picks it up, but straight leveling out over the drop zone. Wow, look at that. Um, you know, 50,000 people coming for a D-Day event in rural Ohio. Although World War II is not really taught in schools very much, there's obviously still a, a kind of massive interest here. And talking to those, that father and son a moment ago, it's, it's clear it certainly means a lot to them. So the C-47's come back again. It's flying quite low, I'd say... You know, maybe 800 feet, 1,000 feet, something like that, coming over, and I'm, and it's really slow now. It's 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 crawling. Yeah, there we go. Here we go. Wow, there they are. Whoa, round shoots, sort of emerald light, emerald copper green, kind of in the sunlight. Absolutely lovely. And here they come down. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. A stick of 11 floating down. How imagine, I guess that's a little bit higher than they would have been in the war. It's taken them a little bit of time to come down. So what's that? You know, I've been talking for a minute or so already. Down they come. Look at that. What an amazing experience that must be. I know Al's done this and knackered his ankle in the process, but hard to control. The first man is just about to touch down in the corn roll whoa collapsed another one's about to go in the hedge oh ouch he's gone straight into the corn he's all right first man's up he's pulling in his parachute i'm very glad i saw that i wouldn't have wanted to miss that that's quite a quite a thing to see and you know they're only a few hundred yards away and that's lovely because every single man is looks to be down safely <laughs> We're in America. <laughs> Everyone whistling and clapping, and quite right too. A round of applause. Well, now Stu and I must pack up and head back to our friends in the uh, in World War II armor. 
And then I'm going to go and talk to some more people, including one of the people who's organising all the infantry, the infantry reenactors. So more in a minute. So I'm back on the uh, armour line with World War II armour, and I promised you last time I was chatting that I was going to chat to Eric Alberson. And um, Eric, you're with me now. I am. Uh, very exciting. And you're kind of you're kind of number two, aren't you? Really? Uh, one of the head honchos there. Yeah, one of the number twos, threes. Yeah. So I'm the uh, the head historian, armor historian, and then also the uh, head of training and plans and operations for all the events and training that we do. Yeah, and your background is obviously military. Here comes yes. the Dakota again. Um, You've done she, all sorts of stuff. She flew on D-Day. It's Whiskey 7. She, she flew on D-Day in, in June 6, 1944 and still flying. Yeah, the amazing thing is I think that's the one I flew over Normandy on. Yeah, they, I think they did the big trip overseas to do that. Well, I don't know how long they've had it, but there was, um, there was one that was owned by a fellow called Peter Levanos, and that actually dropped the 506th Airborne oh, yeah. on D-Day, and we went over in it and did the same route and everything. Oh, really? And, but instead of turning back and going back to England, we then went all along the coastline oh, man. and landed a carpet gate, which was... You know, it was pretty. That was amazing. Pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah, it really was. It was a lovely day, a little bit of cloud and stuff, so that was all good. But yeah, they're always great to see, aren't they? Yeah, uh, absolutely amazing. Just such a lovely sound. You know, and a lot of people just don't realize. You know, you know, these vehicles are eighty plus years old. You well, know, yeah. All, all of our, our youngest tank is our M twenty six Pershing, and she was built in nineteen forty five. She's our youngest tank. Yeah, well, I mean, Rabbi Rob was making the point when when I caught up with him, and and he was saying that you know these are these are machines, they're fighting machines, but they're also antiques. They are. Yep. And so even though we operate them as they did during the war, we're also preservationists. So, yes. you know, because our goal is to keep them alive for as long as possible so people can experience what it was like, you know, complementing the static museums. Because when they're sitting in the museum, it's still awe-inspiring, mm-hmm. but a whole different thing changes the feeling and respect for just the, the machines and the men, but also those on the other side is when those engines start rolling, tracks are tearing up the earth, and... The 50 cal machines gun just thump, thump, thump. The main guns are going. You see three Shermans on the line. It's something you don't really see, and so you walk away with a better appreciation, and that's ultimately our goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm quite, I'm, you know, I'm pretty into the experiential side of research. I mean, on this podcast, I'm always banging on about walking the ground, and, you know, I just think that's really, really important. You can't understand the landscape in which someone's fighting the decisions that are made unless you've kind of walked the ground and can see it for yourself, because someone can tell you there's a hill or a ridge or a mm-hmm. river or whatever, but until you're there, you you know, how big's that hill, how big's that ridge, how wide is that river, or how deep, yeah. and all those sort of things. So you do need to do all that, but equally, I think it's important to handle a rifle, mm-hmm. put on the uniform, be in a tank, smell it, feel it, touch it, you know, get a, get a sense of it. And it just enhances your understanding of what people, you know, 80 years ago were, were doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and one of the things that's really struck me, Eric, since I'm um, pitching up with you guys on, on Thursday evening, is the kind of very, very profound respect you have for these machines and what you're dealing with and what you're handling every single day. And it's not just the machines, it's the people who fought, fought in them. And you, you have this clear um, desire to get things right. Absolutely, 100%. You know, our museum is only seven years young, and so we're always trying to improve, 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 and we go back to the archives. We have a massive archives at the, our free-range tank farm in Florida. Yeah, that's that's my office. Yes. Um, you've seen it. Yes. Uh, and, you know, and so we take everything so seriously. Only virtually, though. Virtually, yeah. Um, and so one day, maybe in person, you'll be there. Let's hope. I'm uh, very keen to. So we are so we're so authentic. We try to be so authentic. So it gives you know, if you're honoring the veterans and the machines, you have to do it right. 
yep. down to every element of the uniform mm-hmm. um, because you know everything we do so our training like we train once a month because I always tell everybody uh, being a retired US Army tanker is tanks are meant to do three things hurt kill maim and they do not care who Yep. Um, and so I told my guys, I said, you sh- every time you get around these machines, you climb up on it. If you're not feeling afraid of them, something's wrong. Right. And so that's why we train every month. And we train. I pull Don't up. take them for granted. Exactly. Absolutely not. We all donate blood. You know, you hit your finger here and there, even though you wear gloves. Um, but, you know, these are machines. They don't have a conscience. They're just meant to kill. Right. Um, right, you are right, their right. brain. You are their heart. And so, you know, you are the one that makes them do that. So you have to be on top of your game at all times. Yeah. Um, you know, and when we do training, I pull out the uh, Armored Forces training manuals from Fort Knox. Do and you? also the... So you're using original manuals. Absolutely. Original sources. Yep. yep. And so we go through, like, we do mock gunneries just like they did in World War II. Obviously, we're not shooting live rounds. Our, yep. We love our neighbors in Florida. They love us. <laughs> and when we come to events, you know, uh, we... They wouldn't frown upon us if things were coming that way. Okay, but these are not deactivated. I mean, you absolutely could fire a live round if... if absolutely, yep. So we... Fire into the sea if you wanted to. Yep, so when Rabbi Rob adds a new uh, vehicle to the collection, not just tanks, because we have tanks, tank destroyers, yep. artillery, cavalry recon, support right. vehicles. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't And we it? also are we're building up our German line. We just got our 88 Flak 37 a couple months ago. Wow. That was... So built. you're now training up on how to operate it? Absolutely. So right after D-Day, our uh, some of our guys are our 88 crew. And so our first event, bringing out our Flak 37 that was built in 1943 in Pilsen, uh, Czech Republic by wow. Skoda Works, yep. um, will debut, debut in Zephyr Hills, Florida, Veterans Day weekend, November. And then next year at D-Day, Kalani at 2024, we, we hope to bring her here. Wow. And you know, and so we've we've trained on it, and we can set the gun up and get the, uh, the carriage off in about five minutes. But then mm. you have to level the train alarms uh, and then also level the fire, the trunnion system, the firing system inside the gun, so the gun is level, uh, so it's not canted one side, canted another side. So even though you get out the trailer, you get the uh, the bogies out of the way. You still got work to do. Yep. Um, and so it's an impressive machine. It, it's once you get around it, you realize how respect, you know, how fearful that gun is. Yeah, sure. Thankfully, they didn't have as many they did as like you know the pack guns, the pack forties, and whatnot, and the seventy yeah, yeah, fives yeah. and good thing for us and also we've learned just through training because uh, yep. we go through burnt Buddhist archive manuals and we you know we try to get them translated if we can't get it in English we have good friends in Europe and mm-hmm. Germany and Austria that help us out um, we learned that even if you just get the 88 unlimbered it takes about 10 minutes to get that thing limbered back up and mounted to the SDKFC 7 right and you know you realize that why they would sometimes fire mounted on the system because once you get one round off you're exposed. Yep. And you're done. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Well, that's one of the things. I mean, you, you see that in Normandy where where the Germans' uh, artillery, whatever it, be, whether it be anti-tank, whether it be field, they're increasingly reluctant to fire mm-hmm. because of the overwhelming counter-battery fire that they're going to get the moment they do. Absolutely. And you read personal accounts. And, and that's so- the problem with the 88 dual-purpose gun yep. is it's not maneuverable. You know, it's great if it's on a tank because you can yeah. fire around and bug off somewhere or even a yak pamper or whatever but when you when you're on the ground you're you're there yep um and you know and that's one thing um and actually matt who's walking up right now matt lambert he's our armorer and he's our SME with uh, german military equipment and so we've been uh reading a lot about you know personal memoirs from you know 88 crews and because a lot of folks think you know one shot one kill with an 88 or one of the anti-tank guns 
You have to think when you're in, when things are flying at you, even if you're not in battle, you're in a defensive position. Your adrenaline, your nerves are going skyrocket. If you've never yes. been in combat, I have myself, yep. and uh, it's one of the biggest rushes you will ever have. Yep. But at the same time, it's surreal, and so it's not one shot, one kill. And so there was often, you know, anti-tank gun crews. It would take about ten to fifteen rounds to get on target. Right. And you know, yeah. unless it's kind of point blank or whatever, but if it's any distance, absolutely, because you have, you know, there's no laser guiding in those days. There's no, no GPS. There's you, nothing. You are estimating the range. You yep. know, you typically have your gun commander with binos estimating the sure. range. You know, uh, you've got optics on these things, haven't you? But, but the but, magnification is not that much. No. Maybe uh, two and a half to three power, even with the tanks. Right. Um, nowadays, uh, like on and, and slightly kind of shaky hands because the adrenaline's going, and yeah, uh, it, you know, you can you can imagine it, can't you? Because once you fire. You're going to have stuff coming back at you, and that's if you were on the defensive, and you're in, you know, mm. you're in a deflate, you're you got cover, concealment, and all those things. Once you fire that smoke, the, the opposing forces are going to see you, and they're going to return fire. Yeah. So you've got you you get this. Um, a man's just joined us here, but but you've got this you've got this eighty-eight. I mean, is it kind of you've got it, and it's kind of okay, boys. You know, how how do, how do we work this? I mean. Where do we start? You know, you read the books, the manuals, and then kind of just work it out bit by bit. Is it a process of so just it, careful? Well, so, well thankfully, uh, actually, the U.S. Army had uh, captured some uh, 88s in uh, North Africa, I sure. believe, and uh, along with some technical manuals and, and stuff like that. And we actually have a, a copy of a 1943 or 44 American translated manual on how the German 88 works. Right. And it goes step by step of laying the gun and, oh, okay. and setting it so up. So you've got a kind of beginner's yeah, guide. So so that that kind of uh, that version of the Flak 36 is uh, is an earlier version because that's what the Germans were using in in North Africa and then our gun is a Flak 37 and uh, it, it there's a there's a few few different uh, variances and stuff like that but we're able to extrapolate from the uh, old manuals to our gun and and uh, go from there basically sure god i mean i mean just i mean what what a privilege in a way and 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 um how exciting to be kind of i don't know kind of be kind of custodians of this heritage mm-hmm. and 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 keeping these techniques alive i mean you know we're we're very good friends with a um a group called the garrison artillery um volunteers so great, basi- group, great group we're okay all about them you know all about across them. the pond okay so they well that's they'll be thrilled to hear that uh, um and, and keith brigstock who, who's the sort of overall um guy in charge i mean they take it really seriously and the only place um where you can where you can learn to fly to fire anti-tank guns and 25 pounders to the drills that they were using in, in the Second World War. So not only are they keeping the, the, the weapons alive, you know, going, they're also the techniques and how to use them. And, of course, that's exactly what you're doing here. But I suppose my question for my last question for you, Eric, really is, is, is sort of, you know, what, what, what's the future? You know, we're, we're getting up to the point where there's not going to be any veterans left. That's going to be a, a traumatic moment. It is, indeed. And, and you know, where, where is the heritage of, of the Second World War in the U.S., do you think? Well, I mean, you come to a weekend like this, and you kind of think it's pretty strong. It, you know, here we are in a, in Ohio. It's not it's not the most obvious place in the, in in the United States. Not, I mean, you've got Cleveland just down the road, but it, but but even <clears throat> so, this is in U.S. terms reasonably off the beaten track, and yet you've got fifty thousand people here over the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and our biggest thing is, like you mentioned, you know, we're losing more and more World War II veterans every day from not just the Allied forces, but even, you know, on the, you know, the surviving members of the Axis forces. And uh, honoring them and remembering their history is important, but one day we're not going to have any more. 
and then history tends to fade, especially, you know, I will say in the United States, because even though we were so involved in World War II on all theaters, mm -hmm. the United States was not as impacted personally aside from, you know, Pearl Harbor and things like that, or the Kriegsmarine off the East Coast in the, in the Bay sure. of Florida, Texas. But it was Europe that was getting the brunt of everything. So for the you know, Americans, and I always tell everybody this, it's a different aspect for us because, um, yes, we provide the men, the machines, and the industrial strength, but Americans have a tendency to kind of forget things very quickly. Um, you know, 9-11 is 22 years ago, and our country's totally different. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but, um, you know, we don't want to forget because if uh, the men and the women that uh, helped defeat the Axis forces, if they if they didn't do that, who knows what the world would be like? Sure. Um, and so we, as long as we are alive, and the rabbi, um, his goal is to make this last the next hundred years. Isn't that not, fabulous? If not more. Yep. Um, because it is mo it is vital that they are remembered, they are honored, and so even as we lose our veterans, we will we will keep their memory alive. Yeah, that's great. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's hugely impressive what you do. It really is, and um, it's a lot of fun too. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, you know, wouldn't do it if it wasn't. But 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 it's it's amazing to see it, and you know, keep up the good work. Yeah, and uh, we tell our guys, you know, just like our veterans. And speaking of veterans, um, all of these machines are veterans. We treat them just <laughs> as the as the humans. Yeah, nice. Um, you know, they are our babies, and they did their hard work 80 years ago. And some of them even post some of our vehicles. Retired in the late 90s, early 2000s, our M18 Hellcats. Yeah, amazing. They fought in the Balkans Wars. Yeah, isn't that amazing? And so, you know, it's it's, it's insane. Yeah. It's crazy. But it's awesome. We're honored, we're privileged uh, to do this. And a lot, not just us, but along with our, our teams and colleagues from other museums here at D-Day Kanye, such as the Ontario Regiment Museum. Mm -hmm. um, the, Those guys in Pennsylvania, you were saying? Yep, guys in Pennsylvania the, uh, from Alcoast, the hmm. 6th uh, Commonwealth uh, Armored Regiment our good friends from uh, various collections around the U.S. that come together and, and form this armored force uh, here at D-Day so folks can get a good wide breadth of not just U.S., but also Commonwealth and all of the allied nations. Well, thank you for listening and cheerio for now.